0: volume three chapter thirteen of a charming fellow this librivox recording is in the public domain a charming fellow by francis eleanor trollope volume three chapter thirteen the days passed by and brought no letter in answer to castallias from lord seely dreary were the hours in ivy lodge the wife was devoured by passionate jealousy and a vain yearning for affection the husband found that even the bright smooth hard metal of his own character was not impervious to the corrosive action of daily cares regrets and apprehensions algernon was not apt to hate he usually perceived the absurd side of persons who were obnoxious to him with too keen an amusement to detest them and the inmost feelings of his heart with respect to his fellow-creatures in general approached perhaps as nearly to perfect indifference as it is given to a mortal to attain but it was not possible to preserve a condition of indifference toward Castalia. She was a thorn in his flesh, a mote in his eye, a weariness to his spirit, and he began to dislike the very sight of the sallow, sickly face, red-eyed too often, and haggard with discontent, that met his view whenever he was in his own home. It was the daily worry of it, he told himself, that was unendurable. It was the being shut up with her in a box like Ivy Lodge, where there was no room for them to get away from each other. If he could have shared a mansion in grosvenor square with castalia he might have got on with her well enough but then that mansion in grosvenor square would have made so many things different in his life at length one day came a letter to castalia with a london postmark and sealed with the well-known coat of arms but it did not bear lord seely's frank another name was scrawled in the corner and the direction was written in lady seely's crooked cramped little characters i am afraid uncle Val must be ill exclaimed castalia opening the letter with a trembling hand she was so weak and nervous now that the most trifling agitation made her heart beat painfully my lady's epistle was not long and as a knowledge of its contents is essential to the due comprehension of this story it is given in full with her ladyship's own phraseology and orthography my dear castalia i cannot think what on earth you are about to write such letters to your uncle go abroad indeed i suppose ancram would like the embassies to st petersburg or to be governor of the ionian islands it's all nonsense and you had better put such ideas out of your head at once and for all i should think you might have known that we have other people to think of besides your husband especially after all we have done for him your uncle is very ill in bed with an attack of the gout and can't write himself the doctor thinks he won't be about again for weeks you can guess what trouble this throws on to my shoulders, so I hope you won't worry me by any more such letters as the last. As if there was not anxiety enough, Fido had a fit on Thursday. I hope you are pretty well. What a blessing you've no sign of a family. With only you two to keep, you ought to do very well on Uncram's salary, and you can tell him I say so. Yours affectionately, B. Seely." poor uncle val exclaimed castalia dropping the letter from her hand i was afraid he was ill pshaw a touch of the gout won't kill him said algernon who had been reading over her shoulder but it's deuced unfortunate for me that he should be laid up at this time and quite helpless in the hands of that old catamaran poor uncle val perhaps he never got my letter at all nothing more likely if my lady could prevent his getting it perhaps when he gets better i can write to him again and ask him "'When he gets better. Oh, yes, certainly. We have plenty of time. There is no hurry, of course.' "'I see that you are speaking satirically, Ancrum, but I don't know why.' Her husband shrugged his shoulders and walked out of the room. As he left the house, he was met at the garden gate by a bright-eyed, consumptive-looking lad in shabby work-clothes, who touched his cap and held out a paper to Algernon. "'What do you want?' asked the latter. "'Mr. Gladwish, sir. His account, if you please, sir.' "'And who the devil is Mr. Gladwish?' the shoemaker sir oh mr gladwish then is an extremely importunate impatient troublesome fellow this is the third or fourth time within a very few weeks that he has sent in his bill i am not accustomed to that sort of thing i don't understand it don't give me the paper boy take it into the house please sir began the lad and stopped hesitatingly then seeing that mr errington was walking off without taking any further notice of him he repeated in a louder firmer tone please sir mr gladwish is really in want of the money he has two of the children bad with fever and i was to say that even five pounds on account will be acceptable five pounds he's too modest i haven't got five pounds nor five minutes i'm busy then i'm sorry to say sir that mr gladwish will take legal proceedings for the debt at once he told me to tell you so my state of things muttered algernon as he walked towards the post-office with his head bent down and his hands deep in his pockets but that's nothing it's those cursed bills in maxfield's hands that are on my mind like lead his spirits were not lightened by that which awaited him at the office he had to undergo an interview with the district surveyor who was very grave not to say severe in speaking of the irregularities which had been complained of and were looked on as very serious at the head office The surveyor ended by plainly hinting his hope that persons having no business at the office would be strictly forbidden from having access to it at abnormal hours. "'I—I don't understand you,' stammered Algernon. "'Mr. Arrington,' said the surveyor, "'I am speaking to you not officially, but confidentially, and as man to man. I have been having a little conversation with Mr. Gibbs, who seems to have none but good feeling towards you, but who, in short—' I think it is not needful to be more explicit. I advise you in all friendliness to be stern and decisive in keeping every person out of this office, except such as have recognised business to be here. If further trouble arises, I shall have to do my duty, and make my report without respect of any persons whatsoever. Perhaps, said Algernon, who was white to his lips, but otherwise apparently unmoved, perhaps it would be best for me to resign my post here at once, if the authorities above me find cause for dissatisfaction. "'I can give you no advice as to that, Mr. Arrington. "'You must know your own affairs better than I do. "'There are things which a man can scarcely say even to himself, "'considerations which are painful as they float dimly in one's own mind, "'but which would be unendurable uttered aloud in words. "'Anything like a public scandal or or disgrace to me would, "'would involve a large circle of persons, "'many of them persons of rank and consideration in the world. "'You are possibly aware that my wife,' There was a peculiar tone in Algernon's voice as he said these two words, "'Is a niece to Lord Seely?' But the official gentleman declined to enter into the question of Mr. Errington's family connections. "'Oh,' said he coldly, "'we must hope there will be no question of scandal or disgrace.' Then he went away, leaving Algernon in a chaos of doubt as to whether he should or should not speak further on the subject to Obadiah Gibbs. Obadiah Gibbs, however, decided the question for him. He came into Algernon's room, closing the door carefully behind him, and asked to speak a few words in private algernon was sitting in the luxurious easy-chair which he had had carried into the office for his own use it was about three o'clock in the afternoon of a dull november day the single window which looked on to a whitewashed court threw a ghastly pallid light on algernon's face as he sat opposite to it with his head thrown back against the cushions of the high chair mr gibbs was touched with compassion at seeing how changed the bright young face looked since he had first been acquainted with it and yet in truth the change was not a very deep one it was more in colouring and the expression of the moment than in any lines which care had graven come in gibbs come in said algernon with his affable air the clerk seemed the more anxious and disturbed of the two he sat down on a chair algernon pointed out to him in a constrained posture and seemed to have some difficulty in beginning to speak albeit not a man usually liable to embarrassment of manner his superior stretched his feet out nearer to the hearth and slightly moved his white hand to and fro looking as a child might have done at the glitter of a ring he wore in the firelight mr wing did not seem very well pleased sir said gibbs after clearing his throat of course he had to appear displeased whether he was or not gibbs a little hocus-pocus a little official solemnity is the thing to assume i suppose i think that man's nose is the very longest i ever saw remarkable nose eh gibbs but sir continued gibbs declining to discuss the surveyor's nose he said that from inquiries that had been made it's pretty certain that the missing letters were stolen they must have been stolen at whitford very intelligent on the part of the official mr wing only i think you and i had come to pretty nearly the same conclusion before he made strict inquiries about the people in the office here and i had to give him what information i could sir of course of course gibbs i quite understand said algernon putting his hand out to shake that of the clerk with so frank a cordiality that the latter felt the tears spring into his eyes as he took the cool white hand into his own i have felt very much for you mr addington said he your position is a trying one indeed i would do almost anything in my power to set your mind more at rest but i am sorry to say that i have an unpleasant matter to speak of i wonder thought algernon leaning back in his chair once more whether my friend obadiah conceives our conversation hitherto to have been of an agreeable and entertaining nature that he now announces something unpleasant by way of a change you will understand said gibbs that i am speaking to you in the very strictest confidence i should be sorry for it to come out that i had meddled in the matter nor sir would it be well for you to have it known that i gave you any warning i wish the old boy would not be so confoundedly long-winded thought algernon nodding meanwhile with an air of thoughtful attention but gibbs was prone to long-windedness and to the making of speeches and he now availed himself of the opportunity of haranguing the postmaster one of whose chief faults was a vivacious impatience of his clerk's eloquence to the fullest extent but the gist of what he had to say was this Roger Heath, the man whose money-letter had been lost, now declared that his correspondent at Bristol, being interrogated in the hope that he might be able to furnish some clue to the identification of the missing notes, stated that he remembered one was endorsed in blue ink instead of black, and that he, Heath, had reason to know that one of the notes paid by young Mrs. Errington to Revell, the mercer, had been endorsed in blue ink now sir proceeded gibbs i remember it's being a good deal talked of in the town at the time that young mrs errington had money unknown to you and mrs Revel spoke of it to many damn mrs Revel! what does it all mean gibbs algernon got up from his chair and leant his elbows on the chimney-piece and hid his face in his hands but he so stood that he could watch the clerk's countenance between his fingers that countenance expressed trouble and compassion gibbs got up too and stood looking at algernon and shaking his head ruefully i thought it well you should be known what was being said mr Errington said he what can i do gibbs how can i stop their cursed tongues algernon still spoke with his face hidden no sir you cannot stop their tongues but you might possibly put a stop to what sets their tongues going of course the matter may be all explained simply enough there may be plenty of banknotes endorsed in blue ink of course there are chattering idiots and as to that particular note, Mr. Ravel paid it away, as well as the others Mrs. Errington gave him, to the agent of a Manchester house he deals with, the next day after it came into his hands. I ascertained that from Ravel himself. "'I'll have the note traced,' exclaimed Algernon, looking up for the first time. "'That would be a difficult matter, sir. It has gone far and wide before now. I tell you, I will have it traced, and I will have that malignant scoundrel Heath pulled up pretty sharply, if he dares to make any more insinuations that—it is not difficult to see what he is driving at.' Gibbs laid his hand on the young man's shoulder. "'I feel for you, Mr. Errington, he said. "'If I did not, I shouldn't put myself in the disagreeable position of saying what I have said. I should have attended to my own business, and let matters take their course. I hope you believe that I had only a kind motive in speaking.' "'I do believe it, heartily.' "'Thank you, sir. Then I shall make bold to give you one word of advice. Don't stir in the matter, nor make any threats against any one, until you have ascertained from Mrs. Errington where she got the notes that she paid to revel.' Algernon had bent down his head again, and he now answered without looking up. "'No doubt Mrs. Errington can account for them to me, but she is not bound to do so to any one else, nor can I allow any one to hint that she is so bound. I should be a blaggard if I could listen to a word of that sort. "'I hope it may come right, Mr. Errington. After all, there has been nothing, and so far as I can see, there can be nothing but talk to hurt you.' "'My good fellow,' said Algernon, as he once more gave his hand to his clerk, "'it's a kind of talk which poisons a man's life.' you know that as well as i do then gibbs took his leave of his superior and went back into the outer office to watch over the epistolary correspondence of whitford as he sat at his desk there his mind was full of sympathy with algernon errington poor young man he took it beautifully it must be a terrible blow an awful blow but no doubt he has had his suspicions before now "'What a warning against worldly-mindedness! "'He is a victim to that vain and godless woman, "'and that's all that comes of the marriage "'that so uplifted the heart of his mother. "'But he would be a beautiful character "'if he had only got religion, "'and would leave off profane swearing. "'He is so guileless and outspoken, "'like a child almost. "'Ah, poor young man! "'I hope the Lord may bless this trial to him. "'But religion or no religion, "'I don't believe he'll ever be fit "'to be postmaster of Whitford.' Thus ran the reflections of Mr. Obadiah Gibbs when algernon reached home that evening he bade lydia put up a few things for him into a little travelling valise and when he met his wife at the dinner-table he told her he should go up to london that night by the mail-coach he explained in answer to her surprised inquiries lamentations and objections uttered in a querulous drawl that he must get help from lord seely that it was useless to write to him under the present circumstances seeing that his wife would probably intercept the letter and that, therefore, he had resolved to go to town himself and obtain a personal interview with Lord Seely. But, Ancram, what's the use? Why on earth should you fly off in this way? I'm sure it won't do. Do you suppose for an instant that Aunt Belinda will let you get at him? I must try for it. Things have got to that pass now that—do you know what happened to me just as I went out after lunch? Gladwish, the shoemaker, sent— sent to threaten me with arrest i shall be walked off to prison i suppose for a few wretched pairs of abominable shoes the fellow has no more notion of fitting my foot than a farrier to prison oh ancram but gladwish's bill cannot be so very large of course it's not so very large then if we paid it or even part of it paid it upon my word cassie you are too absurd paid it in the first place i have only a very few pounds in the house barely enough to take me to town i think and in the next place if i paid gladwish what would be the result the butcher the baker and the candlestick-maker would be all down on me with summonses and writs and executions and bedevilments of every imaginable kind but you have no more notion you take it all so coolly pay him by george cassie it's very hard to stand such nonsense Castalia withdrew from the table and sat down on the little sofa and cried. Her husband looked at her across a glass of very excellent sherry, which he was just about to hold up to the light. "'I think, Castalia,' he said, "'I really do think that when a man is in such trouble as I am, reduced to the brink of ruin, not knowing which way to turn for a ten-pound note, struggling, striving, bothering his brains to find a way out of the confounded mess, he might expect something more cheering and encouraging from his wife than perpetual snivelling with that he cracked a filbert with a sharp jerk of indignation but algernon's forte was not the minatory or impressively wrathful style of eloquence he could hurl a sarcasm sharp light and polished but when he came to wielding such a ponderous weapon as a serious reproof on moral considerations he was apt to make a poor hand of it It was excessively disagreeable, too, to see that woman's thin shoulders moving convulsively under her gay-coloured dress, as she sobbed with her head buried in the sofa cushions. That really must be put a stop to. So, as it appeared evident that scolding would not quench the tears, he tried coaxing. The coaxing was not so efficacious as it would have been once. Still, Castalia responded to it to the extent of endeavouring to check the sobs, which still shook her frail chest and throat when shall you be back ancram she said looking beseechingly at him he answered that he hoped to be in whitford again on tuesday night or wednesday at the latest it was then monday and he particularly impressed on her the necessity of telling any one who might inquire the cause of his absence that he had been suddenly called up to town by the illness of lord seely he had in fact said a word or two to that effect when on his way home he had ordered the fly which was to carry him and his valise to the coach-office castalia insisted on accompanying him to the coach despite the damp cold of the night a proceeding which he did not much combat since he felt it would serve to give colour to his statement to the landlord of the blue bell keep up your spirits cassie he cried waving his hands from the coach window as she stood in the inn-yard muffled in shawls and furs i hope i shall bring back good news of your uncle then castalia was trundled back to ivy lodge in the jingling old fly whilst her husband rolled swiftly behind four fleet horses towards london End of chapter 13